Take your Bibles and turn to John 14. Like Justin said, today's the, um, the third Sunday in our celebration of Epiphany, which means that today we're focusing on the concept of manifestation. Um, started off with declaration, the declaration of the Son of God. For unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. Last week, DJ led us through illumination, particularly the concept of judgment. And the way that judgment illuminates, the way that the judgment of God is full of grace. Um, that as the judgments of God come upon the children of God, that these are things that we should be desiring. Along with the psalmist, we say, search me and know me. Like, get in there, God. Mess around. Clean it up. Show me. If there's any wicked way in me, lead me into life everlasting. Um, and uh, this illuminating work that God does through his judgments is one of the key ways that God loves his children. His judgments are his disciplines. Hebrews 12 tells us that the discipline of the Lord is the evidence of the love of the Lord. And so we receive those things. Today we're going to look at manifestation from John 14. Um, now, the, the word manifest, I don't know about you, but I don't use that word a lot. You know what I mean? I pretty much use it when I'm at church or, or when I'm talking about churchy things. You know, like I believe in the manifestation gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, or, you know, when I pray, I'll say, you know, uh, I pray that the Holy Spirit would, would manifest himself am- among us. But the word manifest isn't a word that I use a whole lot out, out in just, just normal life, you know. Pretty much the only time that I would hear the word manifest is if I'm sitting on an airplane and they're missing somebody and they're checking the manifest, right? Like that, that, that kind of a thing, which isn't the key, which isn't, it doesn't mean anything to do with anything when it comes to John 14. Um, manifest is, is, is much different in, in this. So this is one of those, this is one of those Bible words that we need to reclaim. All right? It's one of those like, words that you, you use it when you're talking churchy talk. Um, but in Jesus' day, this would have been a pretty normal word. Uh, and it would have it made more sense and had more depth than, than how, how we would necessarily use it. Because um, the word manifest is, is a nuanced and, and deep word. When we think about manifestation, um, like if I were to ask you for synonyms for manifestation. Um, well, heck, let's do it. What are some synonyms for manifestation? Or for manifestation. Display, show, appear, come, reveal. Yeah, these are all excellent synonyms. And none of them does do service to the actual like word manifest. Um, so we'll get into it as we get there. Um, uh, and, and you'll see how Jesus walks us to this concept of manifestation in John 14 as he gets to about midway through the chapter. But to understand this, like, I'm again, I know I say this all the time to you people, and I'm going to keep saying it. Like, please let the Bible be the Bible, right? Please let the story be the story. Don't just read a chapter and stop. Right? When, when, when John wrote this gospel, there, no, there were not chapter breaks and there were not verse headings. Like This story is meant to be together. If you try and understand chapter 14 without chapter 13, then you miss manifestation. Like you can't get it. Jesus is hilarious, I think, at the beginning of John 14. We, I, I, John 14 is most spoken by me at funerals. It's generally the first thing that I'll say at the graveside. It's how I start that, and, and appropriately so. Right? The first thing Jesus says is, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my house are many mansions, and I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Right? Good stuff. Really comforting words. And appropriate for that situation. In the preaching t- context, the teaching context, as we're in today though, if you look at John 13, and then look at what Jesus, the way Jesus starts John 14, it's just... 
I just think it's a little bit humorous. So look at John 13. Just, just glance back at it. John 13 begins with Jesus washing his disciples' feet, which is in itself a little weird. Right? I mean, John 13, all, they all come into the room. They're going to have the Last Supper together. They all come in, and they, all of them walk past. All right? if there's, which you could maybe understand. You know what I mean? Like there's 12 disciples. They're all on the same team. They all sort of have this competition thing going. One of, a couple of them have just asked Jesus, Lord, can one of us sit on your right hand and the other on your left in the kingdom? You know, so there's clearly like some stuff going on here in the dynamics between the men. So, uh, but I'm human. I can understand that, like walking in and thinking to myself, oh, heck, why? Why should I wash feet? I mean, Simon's the zealot. He's the political moron, you know, like, like him and his group of ragtag band are going to overthrow Rome, you know, yeah, yeah. Or, or walking past it and, you know, being like, well, Judas is a jerk, so, I mean, he should really do this, right? So walk right past it. And everybody thinks that about somebody else, you know? Like, well, Jay's acting all big and spiritual all the time. Shouldn't he be the one washing our feet? I'll just walk right past it. Well, it's interesting. All 12 of them walk past. There's one person that should not be washing feet. It's Jesus. And they all know that. And, and I don't know if you've ever had that experience where humility is thrust upon you because someone else chooses to be humble that you really admire. But that's a weird situation, right? And so they're all sitting around, and then Jesus gets up. Well, nobody's going to wash feet. I guess I will example to them how to serve and love one another. So Jesus gets up to wash the feet. And I can just see, like, all 12 of them, like, start to move. No, 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 I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. It's too late. Like, you, you missed that. You know, you, you missed that. Jesus then washes all their feet, which, like I said, is troubling. It troubles Peter to the point that he tells Jesus what to do and what not to do, which isn't a good thing to do with your rabbi. And, but Jesus just sort of settles him down, like, calm down. You're already clean. It's, it's okay. And then they get back to the business at hand of having this meal together, right? So then when you hit chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus starts talking about the fact, and he's doing, he does this blatantly, like he's not masking things here. He's, I mean, his statements are just bold statements. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So Jesus, the rabbi, has already washed the feet. There's some trouble in the mix. Now Jesus just says to them, one of you is going to betray me. And they look around at each other. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. Now, we know that was John, right? The guy that wrote this gospel. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, which is just awesome. It's hilarious. Like, Peter's like, John, you're in good with Jesus. Find out what's going on here. Like, what's he... What's he talking about? Because Peter knows that if he, because Peter already spoke up, right? Like Peter played his card. <laughs> that debit is made from the account. Jesus, don't wash my feet, but I have to wash your feet. Oh, well, then wash all of me. No, I don't have to do that. All right, well, Peter doesn't have anything else where he can say anything at this dinner table. But he's troubled that somebody's going to be betrayed. So he says to John, John, go do my dirty work for me since I already shot off at the mouth and was wrong about it. So then John says to him, so that disciple leaning back on Jesus says to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, again, this is a blatant statement. Jesus has a piece of bread in his hand. It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread after I dip it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him, which is something of a bold statement in itself. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. 
And then this text tells us that the disciples all thought that he was telling them to go out and um, get the things that they need for their feast, or that he should give a gift to the poor. So they miss it, right? But there's definitely trouble at the table. There's definitely trouble there. The rabbi has done the feet washing, and now someone's going to betray Jesus, and they all know it. And then things get more troubling. Verse 31, the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now notice that language there. The Son of God is glorified. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. All right, this is going to become a repetitious phraseology. All right? This is going to become like a, a way that Jesus is going to be talking. A lot of ins and hymns and things like this. And him and him and him and him and you and him and him and me and this and that and the other. All right? This is how Jesus is going to start piecing things together for us. But he does, says some things that are even more deeply troubling. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. All right? So there's trouble, and then there's more trouble, and now Jesus says, and by the way, you're going to lose me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And then he just completely doesn't even reference it. By the way, I'm going away. A new commandment I give to you that you should love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. But Peter's mind is now reeling at this point. Right? Like, did did, Jesus, and so now I'm going to leave you, but a new commandment I give to you, you should love one another. Peter's still stuck on the other thing. Like, what? Did he just say he's leaving? And that we can't go with him? Because so far, we've gone everywhere with him. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I would lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Right? I mean, things are getting very heavy in the room. Right? I mean, it's already, they've already been put in their place because Jesus washed their feet. On top of that, one of them is going to betray Jesus. On top of that, Jesus is leaving, and they're not going to be allowed to go with him. On top of that, Peter, the most bold, courageous one of the bunch, has Jesus look him in the face and say, You will deny me. And then Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. (laughs) Right? I mean, what a way to break the air. Right? Don't let your hearts be troubled. There's going to be, there's a lot of trouble injected into this situation. Just boom, boom, boom. All at once. But don't worry about it. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now now Jesus, it's, I think there is a piece of humor to it, but there's also a deep truth in this as well. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Why not? Can someone tell me why my... This is, I'm Peter, I'm thinking this. Can someone tell me why my heart should not be troubled right now? Because Jesus just said, somebody's going to betray him. And then he looked at me and said, you're going to deny me. If I'm Peter, I'm putting two and two together. Right? And my only consolation is that when Jesus dipped the morsel of bread into the stuff, he didn't give it to me. At the same time, I'm in somewhat of freak-out mode. Because... 
there's plenty of trouble in this situation. Don't let your hearts be troubled. It's the same feeling that I have when I stand at a graveside with someone and read this verse. When I look at a widow in the face, you know, who is, whose, whose life has been unalterably changed and, and who the weight of the world is upon her, or at a child who has just lost someone that they dearly love, or at parents who lost a child too early, Right? It's the exact same thing when I stand there, look those people in the face, and then read this verse. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I'm in verse 3 here. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way you're going. How can we know the way? This is a perfectly good question. Like, everybody needs to get off of Thomas's case. Dude was a machine. Like, this guy had some serious faith. And frankly, I think he asked a good question in the upper room. I'm not sure that we should... Like be slapping him with doubting Thomas. Your son has a good surname. Yeah, keep it up. All right. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? See, this is exactly, if, again, think Judaically here, right? Think Hebraically. Jesus is the rabbi. Who sets the direction? He does. Does he inform them? Like, does he, does he call council meetings? Like, what do you guys think? Samaria? Galilee? Jericho? Like, where are we at in this? What are you, what, what's, your, what's your gut feeling? No, the rabbi says, this is where I'm going. Remember John 4. He wanted to get to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. He had to meet the woman at the well so he could teach his disciples, right? Like, the rabbi makes these calls. The rabbi makes these decisions. So when Jesus says to them, I know the way, and you can't go with me, that makes perfect sense. Okay, like Jesus knows the way. He's the rabbi. Certainly, he's the one that sets things in motion. And so Thomas' question here is a good question because Jesus just told them that you do know the way. Like, you, you do know the way. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, now this is interesting, Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to where? Say it. The Father. That's right. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus has just now told them the, the destination. Right? Jesus says, Thomas asks a good question, how can we know the way? Jesus says, you do know the way. I'm the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So while not answering a direct question, he specifically does let them in on the destination. The destination is not Galilee. The destination is not the overthrow of Rome. The destination is not Samaria. The destination is God. Right? The destination is the Father. That is where Jesus is going. And Jesus is inviting them through him to know the Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
So he basically, uh, no, 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 I skipped something. Verse 7, sorry. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus says, and by the way, we're already there. Right? Like, how do, uh, Jesus, we don't know the way. Well, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one can get to the father except through me. And by the way, the father's already here because I'm here. And if you would, had known me, then you would know the father. Now, let's, again, let's, let's keep this in its context, right? These are Jewish men. These are people that would have been raised on Torah. What scripture, when it comes to this idea of like knowing the father, of seeing the father, what story would their mind have gone to? Moses. That's right. What does Moses say from God? What does Moses ask of God? Can I see you? Right? Can I see you? Can, can, I, can I see your what? Your face. What metaphor does David pick up in the Psalms? Seek my face. Right? Those few chapters in Exodus, those few chapters in Exodus 30 to 34, that forms the framework for Torah mindset. Right? And so, so Moses says to God, can I see your face? And what's the answer? No. No, you can't. I'll let you see the back of my glory after I've gone by you and hidden you in a rock so you don't die. But no, you can't see my face. Which is, which is rough, right? Because at the same time, at the same time that there's this burning within Moses, right, to know God and to see God, it's all set up in a system. Don't forget, Moses does get to see God. Like, he communes with God. There's a tent. And Moses goes there to the tent, and he meets with God in the tent, right? And the tent is covered by blood, and everything's cool. You just got to make sure that everything is done the right way all the time, or else you're dead. But in Jesus, the veil is torn in two, right? In Jesus, there is full access to the Father. And so here is Moses. The high point of Judaic culture being told, no, you can't access me freely. And here is Jesus saying to a bunch of B-team fishermen who still don't get it that you know the Father because you know me. What a gift. What a, what a manifestation. See, now we're starting to get somewhere. I'm not even the main part of my text yet. i got to move. Um, Philip said to him, okay, here we go, manifestation. Somebody said the word show. Lord, show us the Father, Philip says. Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. <laughs> Which is hilarious. And the Moses, t- Moses wasn't allowed to see God, right? But Philip, man, I love this guy. Boldness. Lord, show us the Father, and we're good. Right? Show us the Father, and we'll, we'll be satisfied. Nothing to worry about after that. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Did anybody else hear those verses? Like, is anybody else's mind blown by that? Do you hear what he says? Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Wow. I mean, that's like, that's like Bill Gates giving you a blank check. You know, I mean, you're not going to overdraw the account. And this is, this is wild. We'll come back to it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who, lives, who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him. And what? And manifest myself to him. Judas there were two Judases, by the way, who were disciples. This is not Judas Iscariot. This is the other Judas, the one that we call Jude, who wrote a small book at the end of the Bible called Jude. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And if my father will love him, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. This is manifestation. This is what it means for God to be made manifest. I remember I was in, I grew up a big fan of sports, right? I've always been a big fan of sports. I grew up in what I consider to be the golden age of the NBA, right? Uh, the National Basketball Association in the late 80s and through the 90s when Michael Jordan played and other great players played, right? Like Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars and Patrick Ewing and, uh, you know, the, the great teams of uh, the Rockets and, and uh, the Utah Jazz and MJ showed them all up, you know? And, uh, anyway, I remember being in watching this, you know, I remember watching um, these guys on TV, uh, and like I said, I, I would watch it all the time, and there was a big rivalry that was between the Chicago Bulls and the New York Knicks, and the New York Knicks had uh, a center, his name was Patrick Ewing, and he's just a seven-foot, like, one-inch guy, he played for Georgetown back in the early 80s, and was a great college player, was a great NBA player, too, and so uh, as a kid in the 90s. I was a Michael Jordan fan. That's what we did. And my favorite moment was that one time when Michael Jordan dunked on Patrick Ewing, right? So all that to say that like I had watched a lot of basketball, seen the New York Knicks play many times. I was in the Philadelphia airport for something. I don't remember where I was going. 
But I was in the airport, and this is, I don't think I was going anywhere, but it was, this was pre-9-11, so you could, like, go to the gate, you know, like, with people and whatnot, and, and, and say goodbye, and um, so I, I was in the Philadelphia airport, and the Knicks were coming to town to play the Sixers, and the Knicks plane had just uh, um, landed, and, and, uh, the next had disembarked is the word that's coming to mind, although I'm not sure that's the word that I want. Uh, what do you do when you get off the plane? Deplane. Thank you. The next had just deplaned, which still sounds weird to me, I got to tell you. Right? The next left, right? The fuselage. How's that? With the 737 engines attached to it. So the next walked walked off. And here at the front of the line, walking toward me in the Philadelphia terminal was Patrick Ewing. This dude is huge. I had never seen somebody this, he's still the biggest guy I've ever seen. I never saw Shaq in real life, although I understand that Shaq rivaled him when it comes, but he was big, like really, really tall, right? I mean, like, like, like crank the neck up and look up, you know, like to, to see him. And he had big, hands and he had like size 25 feet and and he would he he could he could step like this like that was his his gait like i'd have to take two to keep up with him and here's patrick ewing walking like i didn't even know what happened i, I don't know i'm 16 17 at this point and patrick ewing is walking to, toward me i was i just i didn't say anything i didn't get an autograph right i just nothing i was just I was just dumbstruck. And it wasn't like celebrity struck. You know, it, it wasn't, it was, it was, holy cow, he's huge. Like, he's, that man is a big dude. Like, I can understand how he can dominate the paint so well. Why he's one of the greatest centers to ever play the game. Holy cow. Massive. Uh, fast forward a couple years. My granddad uh, was a carpenter, still is a carpenter. He's not dead or anything. Um, he's a carpenter, and he uh, worked at a boys' home, right? He would do ministry at this boys' home, a juvenile detention facility um, down near Coatesville. And uh, he would go there, like, I don't know, once a week or once every other week, and he would do woodworking with some of the boys who were in this detention facility. I'm, I'm like 18 or 19 at this point, and... Uh, um, he asks me if I want to join him and go down there. And uh, I was like, yeah, definitely. Uh, I'll help you out. So I'm walking down the hallway, right? Walking down the hallway of this detention facility. And walking toward me is Allen Iverson. Right now, Allen Iverson, for those of you who don't know, was point guard for the Philadelphia 76ers. One of the toughest players to ever play the game, right? Allen Iverson was, was a, a fantastic player, one of the best guards to play in the last 25 years. But he's Alan Iverson. He's shorter than me. I'm walking toward him. I'm just so like, is, is that Alan Iverson? And I'm a big, I've been a Sixers fan my whole life. He's carrying a pair of shoes. I've been a Sixers, and I, 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 and I stopped him. I was like, are you Alan Iverson? And he was like, faux show. <laughs> That's what he said. Faux show. I was just like, dude, that's awesome. I was like, I, I love the Sixers. Like, win this year. He's like, we're going to do it. Something like that. And then walked right past me. I mean, I'm sure he has morons like me do that all the time, Tom. 
right? It turns out he was there doing some visiting himself and had this as a gift, had these shoes as a gift. And I, I, I like, we, I thought to myself, like, that was Allen Iverson. Like, that's one of the best guards in the game. Like, I could take him. <laughs> I mean, dude was shorter than me. He's a little guy. You know, I mean, now I'm, I'm completely wrong. He's an incredible player. You know, I mean, honestly, one of the best guards that I, I've ever seen. And so it's but Patrick Ewing manifested himself to me. I saw Allen Iverson. Right? Patrick Ewing was manifested to me. I saw Allen Iverson. Both were big names, both multi-million dollar athletes, you know, both lots of acclaim, lots of fame. But Patrick Ewing carried this presence, this, this like, strength, this, this aura, this, like, uh, power with him that just left me completely dumbstruck, you know, just, whoa. I saw Allen Iverson and thought to myself, I'd like to play him in one-on-one. I saw Patrick Ewing and didn't think anything. <laughs> right? This word manifests. The word that you want to equate with it, show, appear, display, all of that's good. But the main word you want to equate with it is presence. To manifest, for Jesus to be manifest, and for God to manifest himself to you, right? Or for you to manifest yourself to someone else, right? Is, it's more than just show or appear or, or to be on display. There is a presence concept with it. There is this idea of a spirit that comes along with it. That is the fullness of what it is that you are engaging. That's manifest. To be made manifest here, to be made manifest here means the fullness is there. Now here, this is about to get exciting. Here's it. Okay, so God is, God is what? Well, I guess, don't, don't answer that. God's a trinity, right? That's the one I was going for. We could have been here like all day. God is, God is a trinity, right? God's a trinity. God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. That is testified to and and theologically understood all down through the scriptures, right? No question about that. But very rarely in scripture do you see all three of those things come together, right? There's a blessing in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, where we're blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a couple of other places, but, but it's pretty rare where you see all three, Jesus' baptism, right? The voice of the Father, the dove, and Jesus is, being, is, is present there, right? There's a Trinitarian thing there. That's a major point of manifestation, by the way, is it not? When Jesus comes out of the water and this voice from heaven, this is my son, listen to him, and the dove, you know, comes and settles on his head. Like, whoa. John 14 is another one of those places. Did you notice it? Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Like, who's talking here? Jesus is talking here. Who's he asking from, for the gift from? The Father. And who is the gift? The Holy Spirit. 
the fullness of God is being made manifest in John 14. Is it starting to make more sense why Jesus can say, don't let your hearts be troubled? Right? Like, yeah, you were appropriately humbled. None of you washed any feet. One of you is going to betray me. I'm going to leave you, and you can't come. And Peter, you're going to deny me. But don't let your hearts be troubled. Because God is manifest among you. The fullness of God has come to you. He is talking to fishermen who couldn't measure up in the Judaic standard, right? They were back plying their trade. These were not rabbinical students. Jesus the rabbi goes to these B-team fishermen out on the Sea of Galilee, right, out in Podunkville, nowhere, and says to them, come and follow me. He goes and finds a tax collector, right, that all the Jews hate and says, come and follow me. He finds a zealot, this political crazy guy, and says, hey, come and follow me. He asks the dude that he knows is going to betray him to follow him for three years. He couldn't have figured out another way around that? Right? No, he, he goes and he seeks out these people. And then he says to them, what Moses could not have, you can. What Moses could not receive, you do. You receive it through me. God has been made manifest to you. His fullness has come to you. There is not a part of him that he's holding back anymore. You don't have to be hidden in the rock anymore. Jesus came. He was incarnated. The declaration happened. The light has shone. The manifestation, the fullness of the presence of God came in the person of Jesus. And when Jesus says to his disciples, I have a connection to God, my Father, that I know him, and I'm going to ask him that in my presence, in my absence, he sends a fuller presence. Which is why when Jesus says, it's better for me to leave you than to stay here with you, like he's not joking around. Because the fullness comes at that point. They've known Jesus, right? They've known the Father because Jesus reveals the Father to them. And now the spirit of truth is coming. The fullness is coming. The manifestation is coming. All that is him is being delivered to him. Nothing held back. No laws to keep. No sacrifices to make. No things to say or to not say. No dietary restrictions anymore. No do this, but don't do this. No say this, but don't say this. No make sure that you aren't clean or make sure that you're, make sure that you're right. No more high priest. We hope that you got it right this time. Hope we see you on the other side. All that is done. The veil is rent in two. God has come. His fullness has been made manifest. All that he is, is yours. All that he is, is yours. And it gets better. Did you catch it? Verse 23. Judas says, how will this manifestation happen? Like, how will we see this? But the world won't see it. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and do what? And make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. If there's one thing that the Jewish people understand in this context, it's that God has his house. And if you want to meet God, you go to his house. Right? It's been that way all down through Judaic history. 
God is a God who desires to dwell among his people. Like, that's the story of Scripture. You've heard me ask this question before. I'll ask it again. Right? If heaven's so great and earth is so bad, why before the fall did God come down to the Garden of Eden instead of taking Adam and Eve back up to heaven? Because they would have been perfectly accepted in heaven because they were still sinless. God chooses to come down. Right? God is a God who wants to be here with his image bearers, with the ones that he loves. Right? This, this whole story of scripture is this God who desires to come down, to be with his people over and over and over. We see it again in scripture. Right? God, he is with his people. Like that's the whole point of the book of the Torah, is that God is among us. The creation story in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis is the building of a temple for God to dwell in. The tabernacle is an artistic representation of that for God to live and dwell in. But because there's this rift between man and God through sin, it's always about them going to him. God's house is there. God's house is at the tabernacle. And if you want to commune with God, you commune with God according to that. You go to his house. And when you go to his house, you offer him what it is that he desires. But it's just the, the, the shadows are so great. You remember I told him this, I don't know, a while ago. Maybe you don't remember. Um, the, the drink offering. Right? The, the sacrificial system is always a meal. The sacrificial system is always a meal. If you bring a sin sacrifice to the tabernacle, you bring a piece of meat. And with it, you bring a grain offering, you bring some bread, and you bring a drink offering. You bring some wine. Right? But the drink offering is only in the land of, of Israel, in the promised land. They never did that in the wilderness. Anyway, it's a meal. You got meat, you got bread, you got something to drink. And the wine is poured out before the Lord as a luxury. Right? I mean, th- this, this whole, the whole shadow of the old system is this idea that God wants to be with you. Like, God wants to sit down with you. He wants to eat. He wants to drink with you. He wants to be with you in that place. He wants to talk. Right? He wants to know you and be known by you. The manifestation of God, the fullness of God, the Trinity, this great, huge theological concept that our entire life and church history rests and is hinged upon is brought down to the person of Jesus who comes and makes his home with you. With you. You have a home with God through Christ. You don't go to the temple anymore. He's come to you. The manifestation, the fullness of it, the presence has come. And Jesus says, the ones that I manifest myself to, my Father and I will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home with him. For God to be made manifest is this presence, this this idea, this, this big, massive, huge Trinitarian concept incarnated in Christ and brought to you and me. And everything is open. Full access. Full presence. Through Jesus. God has been made manifest and his home is with you. which helps me 
when I think about what it means to be one of the two prodigal sons. I mean, both sons missed God, right? Both sons had the Father manifested to them. And both sons said, Dad, can you just be my boss instead of my father? Can you limit your presence? Can you take your manifestation down a couple of notches? Give me my inheritance so I can leave home. And he goes home, or he goes to the far country, he hatches in his head, well, I'll I'll just make dad... I'll just ask Dad if I can work for him. I mean, at least his servants have something to eat. The elder son freaks out when his younger brother comes home and Dad throws him a party. And the elder son says, Dad, all these years I've worked for you. All these years I've done everything that you said. And you never honored me like I wanted to be honored. And both of these boys missed the manifestations of their father. Right? Both of them missed the father's heart. Their home was with him. But they were deceived. Their orphan spirit took over. Right? And they left home in order to try and find home somewhere else. Only to find out that there was no other place that could ever be home. Well, the younger son figured that out. The elder son, we never want to know what happened. God is your home. He is manifesting himself to you again today. Right? And for each one of us, there is a piece of orphan, there is a piece of sonship that gets put up for grabs, that makes us want to bail and run, or that makes us want to point our fingers at God and say, when are you going to be who I want you to be? And you know what that is in you. I know what that is in me. I know how that surfaces. I know how that manifests itself and its presence in my life. But today, at this end of Epiphany, at this manifestation point, this is the point of reflection for us right now. Is what about, what about your sonship? What about your belonging in God's home wants to run or is running Or what is it that you are standing before God and saying, God, when will you behave like I want you to? When will you show up? When what Jesus is saying is that God has. And his home is with you. And what you most desire has been manifested to you through Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for the beauty of your manifestation, of your presence that is with us. The idea of you coming and tabernacling with each of us perfectly, you know, personally, together. I mean, what a beautiful, glorious gift that you've given us in Christ. God, give us grace and mercy for those times and those ways that we miss you.
that we deny your presence, that we live according to an old law or according to our self-righteous law. Expose those things to us, God, that we might repent and return home to be with you. Open us to your insight, God, as to those pieces of our sonship that we run from or ways that we misunderstand what it means to be at home with you as a son of God. And we ask you to fit our shape. We ask you to let us run the house. We level our expectations at you. Give us grace, God. Give us mercy. Give us rest with you at home with Jesus, with our Father, with the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the fullness of your manifestation to us. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So may you, my brothers and sisters at Cornerstone, may the fullness of God be made manifest in your life. May you be at home with Christ. May you be at home with your Father. May you be at home with the Spirit of truth. And may you find rest. Amen and amen.